I'm Austin Lugo. I'm Brandon Hess. And this is the Nom Nom Project. Before we get into our weekend review this week, just a quick reminder for all those who want exclusive content from the Nom Nom Project with nothing to say and everything Life Through Fiction, please go to patreon.com slash life through fiction. That's patreon.com slash life through fiction where you get early access to all of our stuff, ad free content and exclusive content. But that being said, Brandon, how was your uh, week in Vietnam? Do you feel like you've learned many a things? I've learned a lot more about Vietnamese mythology, I'll tell you that, and a little bit more about LGBT rights. Uh, we did go over that a little bit in the previous podcast, I believe. Yeah, I think it was pretty good, actually. By far the most uh, interesting week we've done, in my opinion, mostly because we're actually getting into the, the fun stories and not just, you know, the boring politics of how the country actually operates. You were very afraid that you would run out of things by the time we uh, actually went to Vietnam. You were terrified you'd run out of things to say. Well, my fear has proven unfounded now that I've realized that we can actually just start reading books and stories about Vietnam. Yep, we can do whatever we want. This is our podcast. We can literally do whatever we want. Oh, is that how that works? (laughs) One last thing I do want to say to our loyal listeners as you may have heard in our travel update our original plans to go to vietnam in april have been adjusted we now have a tentative date of late june somewhere between june 14th to june 30th although everything isn't yet in place this is most likely when we'll be going so up until that point we'll continue to do our vietnam stuff and continue our journey but just Wanted to let listeners know that we will be going to Vietnam and it is going to be happening soon. So be excited, people. I'm certainly excited. All right, Brand. As you said, the first question is for me. And the question is, are there any Vietnamese celebrities in prison for political reasons? When I was looking into prisoners in Vietnam, specifically political prisoners, they're all people who've done a lot for Vietnam, fighting for different causes. I'm not going to remember their names because I didn't write them down, but if you do want to know their specific names, you can go to the Instagram or TikTok video where I talk about the specific names. But I will talk about some of the different reasons people were put into political prisons and how long they've been in there and that sort of thing. So one of the political prisoners was jailed back in 1975 right after the fall of Saigon. He was jailed first for three years for his poetry, which was considered anti-communist, anti-Vietnam. He was then jailed again a couple of years later and is now serving a life sentence in Vietnam for the same thing. Now, he's continued to write since then, and he's been able to get his stuff published. Obviously not in Vietnam, but he's been able to kind of sneak his stuff out to the rest of the world. It's pretty crummy situation. Although Vietnam isn't as horrendous about their political prisoners as other parts of the world, there are still over 130 political prisoners in Vietnam, and most of the prisoners haven't been imprisoned within the last 10 years, but many of those prisoners are still serving life sentences for a variety of reasons. As I said, uh, there's the poet, there's also a man who was at the forefront of 
modernizing Vietnam in the sense that he was basically the head founder of uh, the modern Vietnamese internet. He got internet to millions and millions of people across Vietnam. You know, he's this big kind of business tycoon. But unfortunately, they saw his acts as treasonous because when you give people the internet, you also give them access to a lot of thoughts that aren't necessarily agreed by Vietnam. And so that, along with a lot of blog posts that he uh, published in which he criticized the Vietnamese government and the problems with getting internet to Vietnam in the mid-2000s led to his imprisonment. He's almost done with his supposed sentence. His sentence is 10 years, and it should be up soon. I do wonder what uh, is going to happen with that. I don't know how Vietnam currently feels about it. I know they like to create this sense of strength by having the Ministry of Culture and these other sort of imprisonment mechanisms. But like I said, a lot of these imprisonments haven't been within the last 10 years. It's starting to move in a different direction. But, I mean, it's obviously not different enough that they're releasing any of these people who have been in prison for these reasons. And the last person I want to talk about, he is a devoted Catholic, which in Vietnam has for a long time been a often abused minority. This is due to the fact that when the French came, they forced many Vietnamese people to become Catholic. And so if you were a Vietnamese person who practiced Catholicism, you were seen as a traitor to the country. You were seen as someone who bowed down to colonialism. Now, of course, everyone's faith is their own and what one wants to believe should be entirely of their own. And Vietnam isn't going around arresting everyone who claims to be Catholic. We're not living in barbarian ages, at least not in Vietnam. I'm sure there are still parts of the world that practice such not great uh, policies. But if someone like this person who tried to spread the word of not only Catholicism, but freedom of religion, you can, and he was imprisoned for that and is still serving a sentence of 15 years. So not as long as the man who criticized the government who's serving a life sentence, but longer than the man who brought internet to Vietnam. So how they measure how long someone goes to prison doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. A little bit arbitrary, yeah. Yeah, seemingly arbitrary. Also, in his fight for freedom of religion, he started to release a lot of corruption within local governments. And ironically enough, the man who sentenced him was one of the people he published about. So, not great. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me, though. Sounds like he made a lot of enemies, which is no good if you're trying to fight a corrupt state apparatus. Very tragic, I would say. I have to wonder what Vietnamese prisons are like and whether or not political prisoners get put into the same kinds of prisons. Because I've heard stories that, not specifically in Vietnam, but generally speaking, political prisoners tend to get put under house arrest rather than into regular prisons. And that's just to prevent them from spreading political dissidents among a larger population. But I wonder if there's tiers of prisons. There certainly are in the United States, like minimum security prisons are significantly nicer. I mean, they're still prisons, obviously, they're quite awful, but it's a lot worse to get put in a maximum security prison 
than it is to be in a minimum security. I wonder if that's a similar situation in Vietnam. Like, I guess a part of me just feels really bad for political prisoners. Of just the idea of getting put into prison for criticizing the government. And it might just be because United States prisons are so terrible that for me that seems tantamount to like, you know, a death sentence or something very extreme. But I guess I just hope the best for the people currently in in jail for political reasons in Vietnam. Yeah, absolutely. And although I didn't look deeply into this side of it, I do know that of the political prisoners I looked up, they are serving in a prison of some kind. The prisons do seem to be relatively safe and all of these prisoners are well-fed. There doesn't seem to be any abuse by any sense. I would imagine as far as I can tell, but of course, how can you tell if you're not at these prisons, especially when you're talking about a government that does control the media? So it's hard to say for sure. But from what families have said, or at least, you know, have said in different press medias not controlled by Vietnam, they seem to be safe and they are still allowed to practice their different art forms, even if it can't be you know published there in their country. So certainly less than ideal. And we do hope for the release of all 130 plus Vietnamese political prisoners, because to be imprisoned for having thoughts or ideas is rather disgusting no matter how divergent your thoughts are so here's to hoping uh this podcast is listened to by the communist leader of vietnam and the president of vietnam and the prime minister and the judiciary branch so if you're listening to us release them because brandon says so and yeah so you know if you don't brandon He'll do something. <laughs> I'll be moderately upset. Well, on to a lighter note, but still a little bit serious. LGBT rights in Vietnam. They're actually a lot less punitive or intolerant of LGBT people than I expected them to be. It tends to be for newly industrialized countries, and I mean industrialized like within the past 80 years. It tends to be that LGBT communities are heavily ostracized, and that's, you know, dependent on the region of the world you're talking about. But it seems that Vietnam is actually fairly tolerant of their LGBT communities. The fact that they were able to hold a completely peaceful pride parade, for example, without any violence whatsoever, the first time they organized it as well, is pretty impressive. I don't think that occurred in the United States. I'm almost certain, actually, that there was a great deal of violence at our initial pride parades. So that's obviously pretty great. There aren't special protections for LGBT people, particularly for trans people. The state recognizes trans people, but they don't allow them to form legal marriages. And the same goes for uh, homosexuals. And that's not great, but it's also difficult to discern whether or not those protections are as necessary in Vietnam as they are in like the United States. Here, it's very necessary to have anti-discrimination laws because there are so many homophobic people or just anti-LGBT people. But it could be in Vietnamese society that 
LGBT people are just much more accepted in general. So those laws haven't been necessary. I'm speculating here, like I don't have information. And there are stories as well, of, particularly among teachers, of teaching anti-LGBT rhetoric to kids. But that doesn't seem to be systemic. Obviously, I haven't gone there to study the school systems. But generally, I think if you're LGBT in Vietnam, you probably got it fairly lucky compared to other countries that you could be LGBT in. Yeah, it reminds me of a story of only a few years ago. There was a school in Indiana where we both used to live. I believe it was Burbuff, which is this fancy private school. Very wealthy kids. Unless you had a scholarship there, you're paying thirty to $40,000 a year for your kid to go to seventh grade or what have you. And for a long time, they were attached to the Catholic Church. They were a Catholic school, which there's a lot of in Indiana. In fact, if you want to go to a private school in Indiana, you're most likely going to a private school. There's only two or three that aren't affiliated with the Catholic Church. And this was very recently, within the last four years, perhaps, a teacher at the school Burbuff was found out, quote-unquote, as in another teacher or student snitched on him and exposed him as gay. He was a gay man. And the Catholic Church first refused to pay for his health care because they believed that he wasn't human, I guess, so he doesn't get health care like everyone else. And then... The head of the Indiana Catholic Church, I don't know what that's called. It's like a... Oh, yeah, they have a special name. It's not Cardinals. There's like a denomination, though. Something like that. And he said this for all Catholic schools in Indiana. He says you cannot have, you cannot hire people who are of the LGBT community. And if you do, you have to fire them. So when Rebuff heard of this, they actually removed themselves from the Catholic Church, which is... A pretty big deal because even though they're getting a lot of money from wealthy families, the amount of donations that they got from the Catholic Church was extreme. And so, you know, at the end of the day, good for Burbuff. I mean, they should have acted a lot earlier and never should have removed his health care in the first place. But the fact that in 2017, it was still possible in the United States to be fired merely for liking someone of the same sex or being part of the LGBTQ community is absolutely ridiculous, especially when you're a teacher. I mean, you're only getting paid like $30,000 a year anyways. You already have a really bad deal to begin with. Quite shameful of us, really. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be that widespread level of anti-LGBT stuff uh, in Vietnam, at least not that came up when I was searching for it. I think it differs quite a bit depending on where you are in the country, though. If you're in more rural parts, you're much more likely to face discrimination. In fact, I think that case of LGBT discrimination by teachers that I read about was in a rural school, if I remember correctly. So there's certainly a difference in tolerance and a lot of ground that has to be covered. But if you're comparing Vietnam to the United States, I think they're definitely much further down the track to uh, full equity than we are, uh, even though they're, you know, no one's really there yet. I hope so. Good for you, Vietnam. Moving on to a lighter subject. We probably should have worked our way into the uh, more difficult stuff, but I guess we got it over with quickly, and now it just it's just fun from here. 
This next question is for me. You asked about festivals, parades, marches, and gatherings associated with cultural events. There's tons, and they all seem extremely awesome. I mean, Vietnam just seems to know how to go hard. They're great at partying. They just love to do it. Of course, the most famous one is Tet, which is the Lunar New Year, which actually just happened a couple of weeks ago. It was February 1st. And this is partially a spiritual holiday to celebrate... I don't, I don't know exactly. Whenever like I read about Tet, they say it's a spiritual holiday, but I don't know exactly what that means because it's a communist country, so they don't have like a national religion or anything. But a lot of the businesses are closed down. They have pretty cool parades with like a dragon, like a paper dragon thing. It looks pretty cool. They serve this food called bon chun. They're also known as rice cakes. They look pretty good. They look pretty delicious. I've never had one, but... I guess they serve them year-round in Vietnam. I do hope that when we're there, I'll be eating a lot of them because they just look the best. If it's got cake in the name. Has to be good. (laughs) There's also the Harvest Festival, which is in the fall. It's very similar to, excuse my Midwestern coming out, but it's very similar to the Apple Festivals in Indiana or Ohio or Illinois and those kind of places. Basically... It's a giant farmer's market that takes place over a whole week. And if you go to big cities like Hanoi or Ho Chi Minh, actually, I think we'll be there during the Harvest Festival this year because it's usually in the, or wait, I can't remember if it's in July or June, but we'll be there around that time. I hope that we get to. It's cool. It's like a giant farmer's market. Everyone brings a ton of food to the big cities like Ho Chi Minh City and Hanoi and everyone just eats a ton of food and has a good time. Another incredible festival in Vietnam is called the Perfume Festival. This is a Buddhist holiday in which people of the Buddhist faith pilgrimage to a part of Hanoi known as the Perfume District, and they light incense like across the entire like three block radius. So people travel from across Vietnam to come, and it's supposed to give you like good luck and celebrate the Buddha and all that. But I guess you can smell the perfumes across the entire city, even in the outskirts of it. Like, that's how, like, many <laughs> perfumes. It's a lot of incense. <laughs> but it looks cool. It looks like a good time. It looks like a lot of people having a good time, lighting incense, smelling perfumes, just living their life. Yeah, when does that happen? I think it's February, maybe March. I think it's early in the year. So we're going to miss out on that one, unfortunately. I think we're going to miss it. <laughs> but there's tons of other festivals, too. I just can't remember the other ones. But, I mean, if you look up, literally just go onto the internet and look up Vietnamese festivals, you'll find, like, 30 of them because they love to party. And so we're probably going to be there or hopefully be there for the Harvest Festival. Are there any others that might line up with the summer months? I believe there's a festival that has something to do with dancing it's like a fan dancing festival that i believe is in the middle of summer that one isn't in hanoi or ho chi minh it's in i can't remember which city it's in it's in a smaller city but still like kind of a metropolis of stores like a middle-sized city but they do this giant fan dance and flower dance and all the different dances we have talked about in the past on the podcast and it's just a whole day of dancing and parading which sounds pretty cool so i'll see if we can find it all right bran the next question is for you 
What are some famous Vietnamese myths or mythology? Now, I did a lot of research into this and can now only name the one Vietnamese myth that uh, I talked to you about, and that's An Dum Boom. And then there's also the mountain god and water gods. There's actually a lot more mythology than I first expected, since it felt like to me that Vietnam would have been a country that had tried to strip away its mythology. That tends to be the case when communists take over. They kind of try to erase as much history as possible. So there's the original Vietnamese like founders of the country. It's kind of like God, but not really. I think it's like a pre-religious sort of creation myth, or like a pre-organized religion creation myth. And that's um, the story of a deity who came from the ocean. His name is Lac Long Quan. I think I got that right. And another deity, a feminine deity named Oko, who came from the mountains. And you can see kind of how this mythology was created because Vietnam is obviously a very mountainous country bordered by the ocean. And there's not, except for the northern delta, there's not very much of a gradient between those two climates. So the creation myth really does resemble the geography of the country, which is the intersection between the ocean and the mountains. And that's the tale is about a hundred eggs that these two deities created between themselves and not people specifically eggs, which still doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. I don't know where they got the concept of humans coming from eggs. But these original 100 eggs hatched the original 100 Vietnamese people, and those people worked together to create the first Vietnamese society. The myth, I think, supposedly takes place in like the middle part of Vietnam, which is interesting. It, it seems to indicate that the original tribespeople or, or humans who came to Vietnam probably didn't actually go into the fertile delta where most of the farming and food production is done now. It seems like they actually first came to the middle part of the country where it's mostly uh, like hilly terrain. That myth about the laying of eggs is seen across many different parts of the world. In China, people came from eggs. Also in parts of Africa, there's a very similar myth it's actually almost the exact same. A god comes from the water, a god comes from... I think in, in Africa, it's not a mountain, but a desert. And they come together, and they make a bunch of eggs, and then people come from that. I don't know if you know this, Brandon, but I am actually a avid reader of mythology and an avid studier of mythology. I've read a lot of literature about mythology, and of course, I've read the great myths, whether we're talking Ovid or... Odysseus, or uh, classic Confucian literature, Hero with a Thousand Faces, which kind of talks about how mythology across different parts of the world are extremely similar, and it's always interesting to read Vietnamese mythology, because not only does it relate to China, which you would guess since the Hung Dynasty and so many other Chinese dynasties took over Vietnam, and of course there's mythology that's similar to French mythology, but there's also mythology that replicates mythology in the Americas, 
before Europeans came in the 11th and 12th centuries. So I don't know. I mean, there's no real logical reason for that. Of course, if you ask a Jungian, they'll say that, well, it's about the collective unconscious and blah, blah, blah. But it might just be that humans as a species have a desire to grab at myths to explain the things we don't understand. It's the reason religion exists. It's the reason so many people are drawn to either Christianity or Buddhism or Taoism or Hinduism or so on and so forth. It's just this need for humans to understand that seems to be uniquely human. I mean, it could possibly be in other animals. We don't know for certain, but as far as I can tell, at least humans have this weird attraction to myths, and I certainly do. So kind of jumping off your mythology, I'll jump into one of the myths I got to read this week, which I felt very lucky about, which is another mythology about a water deity and a mountain deity. These are both male deities. One is named Thwoi... I'm going to get these wrong. Okay, I know the one from the water. I don't remember their names. doesn't matter. Look, the way the story goes is there's this king, and he's got the perfect daughter. I mean, she's a 10 out of 10 in every sense of the word. I mean, she's athletic. She's funny. She's a musician. She's smart. Basically, the perfect lady. And he's like, you are so perfect, so perfect, that no one is good enough for you. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold a competition. And all of the Vietnamese people from all across Vietnam are going to come here. I don't care if they're poor, they're wealthy. I don't give a shit. But they're all going to come to my kingdom and they're going to vie for the hand of my princess. And so, of course, people from across Vietnam come. You have poets reading epic poems. You have musicians playing the songs of a lifetime. You have wealthy businessmen offering tons and tons of gold and all this stuff. And they're just, they're everywhere. Everyone wants a piece of this. And then the water deity and the mountain deity decide that they want this princess too. Like, she's that good. They're willing to marry a mortal. That's how incredible this princess is. And so the water deity and the mountain deity come and they're like, we're like your daughter's hand in marriage. And he's like, well, I don't know. Like, you got to prove your worth just like everyone else. You know, he's really a fair game kind of guy. And so the mountain god's like, yeah, sure. So then he rises an entire jungle right in front of them and mountains just, you know, on a whim. And he's like, well, that's, that's pretty impressive. And then the water deity raises the oceans and then lowers the oceans. And when the oceans lower, fish to feed like a shit ton of people, just tons and tons of fish. And the king's like, damn, these are two dope options so i'm gonna sit on it for a little while come back tomorrow woo me again and whoever woos me the most then you know we'll do our thing so they both go home they prepare their separate kingdoms because i guess the water god has like an underwater palace kind of thing so he's got you know a kingdom of he's like aquaman basically like he's got fish people they can turn into humans and then the mountains god's got mountain people and goats and stuff and I, I don't know other animals so the next day the mountain god comes first and he's got this giant procession i mean we're talking like thousands of people and animals and the princess is like damn this is dope i'm going with this guy like that's it that's what we're gonna do and so they're off and the king's like Whew, done did it never have to worry about that again but then the water deity comes wrong 
He's like, where the hell is my wife? And he's like, oh, the mountain god, like, he was already here. So you kind of, it's kind of first come, first choose sort of deal. So a little late to the game. So the water deity is pissed. So he turns all of his fish into people. And they attack the mountain god. But of course, the mountain god, he just raises the mountains. He's like, I don't give a shit. And at the end of the day, the mountain god wins. And the water god's like, damn, I'm just going to do this every year forever in hopes of one day winning the hand of the princess. And so is the monsoon season. Ah, I see. All to explain the monsoon season. All right. That's pretty good, actually. I like that story a lot. Yeah, I like the idea that is primarily represented by how many goats you have. I think having an entirely goat-based economy was probably peak humanity uh, back 3,000 years ago. <laughs> like, just the idea that, that God is simply a man who has 10,000 goats or whatever is amazing to me. Simpler times. Yeah, I also have to wonder what happened to the fish people. Like, did they go back into the sea? Yeah. They're chilling there. They're there, chilling. They still got their kingdom. Does that make the princess immortal too? Because, like, the gods are immortal. The princess has to be immortal or else he would stop fighting. Because that's, like, the whole thing. It's like he's just got to fight. Well, maybe it just became, like, a spite thing. Or, like, principle of it after a while. And you gotta feel bad for the humans. Because they're dying in the midst of this. Just so these two gods can, you know, fight their petty fight. <laughs> Your entire village gets, yeah, flooded because, you know, some guy got cock-blocked a thousand years ago. I'm like, it's not great. But, yeah, you know, that makes sense. You tend to notice that, like, gods tend to be very shitty people. And and that's just, like, the case in every, like, culture. I happen to think it's just because the world was a really shitty place back then. So they're like, it must be because the gods are dicks. This is entirely unrelated, but I feel is a good point to bring up. When the Romans were around, like early Romans, they figured out modern plumbing. Like, I mean, you could like shit in like a toilet and it would go to like a, a sewer and they figured it out. And then Christianity comes along to the Romans and the Catholic Church is like, I don't know, this technology thing. And so for another thousand years... No plumbing. They destroyed plumbing for a thousand years. Because God said, plumbing, devil's work. My theory on the on the whole we lost plumbing thing is because it's actually nearly impossible to build aqueducts. So, like, the only way you can do it is if you have, like, thousands of slaves and you're killing, like, hundreds of people a month just to get these things put together. So, like, the Romans were literally the only people capable of building sewer systems at the time. Because they were the only ones willing to muster together, like, 100,000 slaves to put them up. It would take a long time for us to develop tools that didn't force you to kill thousands of people to put up infrastructure. But you forget that these slaves didn't have any goats. So... Yeah, maybe if they had taken a few goats from the Vietnamese god, they might have been able to actually... You know, keep the plumbing around for a few hundred years. Moving on. Yeah, to the legend of An Dung Vung. I think that's the name of this character. I really enjoyed reading this one because it seems to be more of a 
grandiose retelling of a real story than it is an actual myth. So supposedly, An Dung Vung is some king with a great army, like a foreign invader, and that's how the myth goes, or the fable goes, who comes into Vietnam to conquer like a piece of, of northern Vietnam, and after doing so, he builds this great citadel to symbolize his power and, and keep control over the region, which ultimately, actually, he doesn't even use. I think he eventually gets defeated in battle, but it's a field battle. It's not even a siege of the citadel. As for what the point of building that citadel was, not as clear, but there are actual historical records of this person like going into Vietnam. Historians seem to think that An Dung Vung was some sort of um, Chinese general who came down to Vietnam during a period of great turmoil in China. It's not the Warring States period. It was the Qin Dynasty, right before the Qin Dynasty was about to be established. There were a bunch of you know, vying powers in China uh, fighting each other. And An Dung Vung was one of these generals involved in the war who, during the chaos, managed to essentially slip away with an entire army and go set up his own shit down south. So he explored parts of southern China and he eventually came to Vietnam and realized that the place was like actually amazing, like super fertile. There's lots of people, lots of, you know, plunder to be had. Lots of goats. Oh, yeah. Thousands, tens of thousands of goats. So he defeated the king that was ruling over the region and set up his own little petty kingdom down there. And he actually ruled for quite a while, too, at least long enough to build the citadel. And that's where the fable comes in, because this foreign invader, after conquering this kingdom, goes to build a big castle. And the story goes that the previous king was so pissed off that he lost his kingdom and was killed that he decided to haunt the new king, An Dung Vung, by sending a swarm of like a thousand chickens after him. That part, admittedly, isn't very clear to me because it doesn't seem like chickens are that much of a threat, but he does think they're a threat, which causes him to enlist the help of a golden turtle from the sea. He like calls forth the sea spirits and they summon for him a golden turtle. Golden Turtle gives him a gift, which he uses. And that gift is a golden claw, like a part of the turtle's claw. And he uses that to make a crossbow, like a magical crossbow, to then slay the spirit of the previous king and kill a bunch of chickens. Man, I really hope I'm getting this right. So he has a citadel, and then he has a golden crossbow. And the fable ends with him getting defeated by a different king, from the nation of Nanyui, which I think is like a collection of tribes in the Vietnam area at the time, or Indochina area. It was like a actually a, quite a large empire uh, for a while until it was defeated by the Qin Dynasty. I think they were the ones who ended up occupying Vietnam for like a thousand years. But anyway, Nanyui sends an army in to attack An Dung Vung, and he actually defeats them in battle a couple of times using his golden crossbow, of course, uh, which could kill 300 men in one shot. Surprising considering that there doesn't seem to be many situations where 300 men would be lined up to, like, make the shot happen. I guess, like, it's, like, a seeking missile. 
Is it like buckshot? That's not clear. I think it's just one crossbow bolt. So either you have to be a really good shot, or it's like a it's like a heat seeking missile. It's probably magic. It did come from a golden turtle from the sea. So, but yeah. So he's actually able to defeat the nation of Nanue in a couple different battles. But because he's just one general with an army that was essentially on loan from a foreign Chinese kingdom, he gets willed away and he can't continue to support his army. And the nation of Nanyu is right there. Like, they're the ones defending their homeland from a foreign invader. So they eventually just keep sending armies at him. And he's defeated at one point. And that's how the story goes. I think he survives the final battle. But he is so embarrassed by his defeat that he essentially goes off to commit suicide. Which is very honorable. It's not a kind of honor that you see these days. Generals don't tend to just kill themselves after they lose a couple battles. But for some reason, that was just the thing you did if you were famous and you lost your fame back then. Yeah, even if you had, like, a magical crossbow. I would think you could at least, like, sell the crossbow and live pretty easily for a while. But um, that's just how it goes. Well, if I'm ever uh, hounded by thousands of chickens, I will be sure to summon a, a sea god and... Give myself a golden turtle. Was like the turtle, could it like talk or is it just like a turtle? I think it could communicate, but I don't think it could like speak telepathic in human terms. Kind of shit? Sort of, yeah. I think that's what it was, yeah. Okay. Well, on to our final question and final myth of the day. My story is about Lang Lu and the creation of. The Vietnamese cake, or the rice cake, or the bung chong. Now, typically when we talk about food, the creation of it is not very exciting. It's just someone bumps into another guy and now you have Reese's peanut butter cups or something of that nature. But the rice cake, the rice cake is one of the most interesting food stories to ever exist, in my opinion. So there's this king, and he's got like 18 sons. Like, he's got so many sons. And he's like, damn, I got all these sons, but only one of them could be king. Now, typically, you know, in a classic king to son move, you give it to your oldest. Or, you know, you do some, like, Game of Thrones shit and, you know, hand it off to one of the others. Or, you know, the smartest or the funniest or whatever. But this king's like, I love food. Like, food? Pretty cool. So I'm going to have a cooking competition. Like, it's like an Iron Chef... 12th century edition so he's like okay all 18 sons you have one year travel the world create the greatest dish and whichever dish i like the most you will be king that's how you became the king in the 12th century which is a pretty cool way to become king in my opinion so most of these princes they're super wealthy they got all kinds of money so they're traveling to europe they're traveling to the americas they're traveling to china they're traveling to india they're going all over they're studying all these people they're learning under master chefs and blah 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 but the youngest son the 18th son he's poor no one gives a shit about this kid no one cares so he's like damn i i can't go anywhere so i'm just gonna chill here in vietnam and you know get to know my subjects get to know my people become one of the people and so he's walking around, he's meeting locals, he's learning things. And then one night when he goes to bed, a deity comes to him. Classic deity move. And this deity is like, I got the perfect dish for you. Like this high quality shit right here. 
So what you're going to do, you're going to get this rice. And this rice is going to be round. Now that's going to represent the heavens. And then you're going to get this seaweed. That's square. And at the time, for some reason, everyone thought the earth was square. I don't really know why, but that was just what people thought. So like you're going to have the heavens and you're going to have the earth. Rice, a little bit of meat, a little bit of something, something, maybe some fruit in there. Put that into said seaweed and then basically make like four squares. It's like a sandwich, basically. And that's what he got. Rice cake. He's like, oh, that's a pretty good idea. So they all go to the king. They show them their amazing, you know, they got fucking, I don't know, like creme brulee and all that shit. But this guy's like, I got the thing. Rice cakes. And the king's like, damn, this is the greatest thing I've ever eaten. And then he became king. And now every year we eat rice cakes to celebrate how badass they are. Frankly, it's a little surprising that you would travel the entire world and discover dishes like creme brulee without first considering putting fruit into rice and wrapping it with, with seaweed. That seems like kind of the first thing you would try, I imagine, if you were an aspiring chef. Especially if, like, a whole kingdom was on the line. But sometimes, I guess, you just need divine inspiration to see what's right in front of you. Exactly. That's it. It's it's the epitome of the idealism of simplicity. And just being there, you know. Being able to see the forest through the trees. Of just being with your people. I mean, basically the purloined letter. Which, of course, is the famous Edgar Allan Poe story. Where there's this detective... He's super badass. He knows everything. He's like Sherlock Holmes, but before Sherlock Holmes. And everyone's like, we can't find this fucking letter. Like, we have looked everywhere. And the detective's like, it's here on the table the whole time. Like, it's it's right in front of you. But you can't see it because you're looking everywhere else. You don't see what's in front of you. So this guy, I mean, a deity had to come help him. But he's like, hey, just grab some of that rice. That's literally everywhere. Some of that seaweed. Also everywhere. Some of the fruit. Again, literally everywhere and just uh put it together they're like damn good stuff right there so good enough to beat 17 other sons as well i wish i could cook rice that well i'm not gonna lie to you so that's probably some fired rice cake there's only one way to find out we gotta go to vietnam and eat rice cakes oh hell yeah they're healthy too i imagine like fill them full of fish that's just rice and fish and seaweed. It's your veggies. So like a complete meal there. They actually sound a lot like onigiri, like Japanese uh, rice cakes. They're very similar. Yeah. It's probably the same thing. I mean, it's basically the same thing. It's just like, they're really big. Like they're like, like one rice cake's like, I mean, it's like this, like it's probably like six inches by like three inches. Like they're, you know, they're not like little tiny things. They're like giant ass. You know, that's a man's meal, you know. Absolutely, yeah. It's like, um, you know, you go to a diner and it's like the farmer's meal is on every menu. And it's just like a shitload of food for some reason. Like five sausages, three huge waffles, and like a half pound of hash browns. That's what the Vietnamese rice cake is. It's like the farmer's breakfast of Vietnam. Which is probably the 
original purpose of the rice cake. It was probably built as a high calorie meal for, cause it's super cheap. So it was probably built around that, but I like the legend better. Cause that's way more badass. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Brandon, that is all of our questions for the week. Any final things you want to say about Vietnam before we wrap up here? I'm hungry. Nice job, Vietnam. All right, y'all. Thank you for listening. You can find me at Austin Lugo one, two. You can find me at anything connected to Light Through Fiction's productions. And you can find this podcast wherever you podcast. You can also find us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at The Nom Nom Project. And once again, for exclusive content, early content, and all stuff Life Through Fiction, go to patreon.com slash Life Through Fiction. And thank you all for listening.